I've been at Point a long time, have never been more excited and confident that what God is doing at what used to be Atlanta Christian College and now Point University, we have nearly 2,000 students um, in a variety of different contexts, all of whom are studying scripture along with whatever other discipline they're studying, graduating more people to go into ministry than we ever have, and people who don't even graduate with ministry degrees going into ministry. So it's an exciting time, and I'm grateful that God gave me the blessing of being at Point. And I'm um, proud to see Joel wearing a point shirt this morning. If I'd known he was going to do that, I would have done it. I'll wear one tonight, I promise. So if you've got a Bible with you, I want you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. And, um, you know, this has been quite a morning already. I got here in time um, to hear uh, Solid Foundation present some great, um, good old gospel music. And I listened to that and enjoyed it. And then... We had a worship service where we sang hymns that I grew up singing in Russellville Christian Church a long time ago. Um, my home church was established in 1883, so my home church is a little older than you guys are. Um, and um, my, my home church, my Baptist preaching great-grandfather, I think it was, uh, went to Augusta, Georgia and heard Alexander Campbell preach and came back to Russellville, South Carolina, and what used to be a little Baptist church became Russellville Christian Church. And um, my grandfather, my great-grandfather was so taken by what he heard from Alexander Campbell that he named his son, my grandfather, Thomas Campbell Huxford. So I've got Restoration Movement Christian Church stuff in my bones from way, way back, Okay. But here's the deal. We've had all this great experience this morning, and um, every time Joel stood up, he said, and please stay and eat. And the only thing between you staying and eating and right now is me. That's not really fair, right? You shouldn't treat a guest that way. But here we go. I'll try to keep you um, engaged and at lunch in a reasonable amount of time. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So if you think about it, our faith really is, in many ways, a homecoming kind of faith. After all, we can go back to the very earliest pages of the Bible itself and discover God declaring it is not good for man to be alone. 
And out of that reality, God created the idea of community as his intentional purpose for humankind. God made us to be homecoming kind of people. You walk through scripture, you discover, for example, that at the flood of Noah, God did not save Noah. He saved a community of people. When God called Abram and Sarai old and childless and without any real expectations of ever having an inheritance, God promised them that if they trusted him, their descendants would be greater than the stars in the sky and more numerous than the grains of sand by the seashore. God is all about community. When through Moses, God called the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he gave them a list of core values. We call those core values the Ten Commandments. And if you look at them, the first four had everything in the world to do with how Israel would get along with God. But the next six, the majority had everything in the world to do with how the people of God get along with one another. God is all about community, homecoming. Embedded in the instructions God gave to Israel for, for, for what life would look like when they took those core values seriously were three great feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles, Events that if they were happening in our day and time and in our worldview and in the context of our own language, we would call them not feast, we would call them homecoming, Passover, homecoming, Pentecost, homecoming, tabernacles, homecoming. If you look in the book of Psalms, Psalms 120 through 134 are often called, in most English translations, you'll see this little phrase, the songs of ascent. Most biblical scholars think those psalms, 120 through 134, were, were psalms that the ancient Jews read as their evening scriptures as they traveled from wherever it was they lived to Jerusalem for these great feasts. And if you read Psalm 120 through 134, you will find embedded in the language of those songs all kinds of words that talk about community, that talk about homecoming, that talk about being together as the people of God. None of it said any better, I suspect, than the opening line of Psalm 130 where God declares how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. If you think about it, what we're doing here at church this morning is something that God himself has declared to be good and pleasant. That's pretty good. Jesus, when Jesus came along, he was all about community. You know the stories as well as I do, I suspect. He called 12 guys who followed him all over the place. Jesus never was a, a kind of a loner sort of guy, it seems. And if you read the Gospels carefully, you, you discover that were other people, especially a, a, a group of women who, who, who were very intent on supporting Jesus, who followed him around. There, there is a definite sense there were people who are sometimes, especially in the Gospel of Mark, described as being in the house. 
as compared to those who are outside the house kind of looking in. Jesus is all about community. And in fact, he said, when two or more people get together in my name, I'm going to show up. Pretty good. If that's true, if you believe what this book says, that means you should believe that Jesus is right here in this room right now. That's pretty good. No wonder God calls it a good and pleasant thing. Uh, Jesus, one of the last things he did before he ascended into heaven was to call some struggling, troubled disciples who weren't sure what in the world had happened and was going on. He calls them to himself, and they apparently have a bit of a homecoming fish fry one morning for breakfast. And it was on the day of Pentecost, one of those three big homecoming events for Israel, that the Holy Spirit of God came down. And what can I say? The world has never been the same since. Crazy things can happen at homecoming if you trust God. And so maybe the question that we ought to ask ourselves on Homecoming Sunday is whether or not we are ready for God to do something crazy in this homecoming day today. So you may be thinking, oh, I wonder why in the world did Joel ask him to come and speak? I mean, for crying out loud, this is the South. We believe in homecoming in the South. Be it church or football, we, we believe in homecoming. I mean, let the word get out that there's a potluck dinner going on at church, man, and people will come for miles at the smell of that food, right? I, I read an article a few weeks ago about a guy who had spent thousands and thousands of dollars on tailgating equipment that he takes to his favorite team's football games every home game. He hardly ever sees a game. He is all into the homecoming stuff. But here's what I want you to think about. Back up for a moment. I mean, I started with Adam and Eve and kind of jumped around through the Old Testament and got to Jesus, and not a one, not one single one of those homecoming illusions I mentioned had anything to do with food. Now, don't misunderstand. I am not being anti-food. I am as anxious to get downstairs as you are to eat lunch today because I know what Southern Church homecoming dinners can be like. But if we are getting ready for God to do something crazy in the life of this church, it's about more than food. And that's why I chose this great text from First Peter. A text, by the way, that was written by the apostle whose sermon Luke chooses to record in Acts 2 when the day of Pentecost happened in the first place. And here's what Peter believes we are celebrating. If this text reflects Peter's faith, which obviously it does, here's what he believes we are celebrating today. Peter believes that when we gather as a people of God, we celebrate the fact that we have been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
Man, that is a theological mouthful if you want to think about it for a second. Peter believes that in Christ we have been born anew. We have been given a new life, a new kind of hope that is alive and active and organic and dynamic. And it's rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But you know what? (laughs) You and I are living in a time when hope is really a hard word to talk about in our culture. Now, I know none of you would ever do this, but just pretend for a minute. If after our big meal today, you're driving home and you decide, you know, I'm going to stop by the convenience store and I'm going to buy me a lottery ticket. Chances are that the clerk behind the counter, when they give you that ticket, will say, hope you win. Hope you win. So I I did a little research. If you want to win, the best ticket to buy in the Georgia lottery is a Fantasy Five ticket. And if you stop today and buy a Fantasy Five ticket, you have a one an 850,688 chance of winning. Hope you win. Okay? Exactly. If, if you want to go big time and you buy the, you know, the big Powerball thing, you have a 1 in 292 million chance of winning. And yet we say, hope you win. Well, that kind of hope, I mean, that, that might leave you broke. But it's not going to give you any real cash to spend, right? Sometimes, for example, a student, you know, I know this is hard to believe that students in a Christian college would do this, but sometimes students in my class, they'll sit on the back row. They don't ever pay any attention. They don't ever turn in their homework. They don't engage themselves in class. They fail all my tests. About two weeks before the end of the semester, they think, oh, man, (laughs) I am not going to pass this class. And so they get all nervous because if they don't pass, They may not be eligible for the Hope Scholarship anymore, or they may not be eligible to play on their athletic team. So they come up to me and say, hey, Professor Huxford, I hope I pass your class. Wow. (laughs) That kind of hope gets you on the ineligibility list, quite frankly. You know, I'm, I'm really convinced that the church needs to start talking more seriously about hope. In fact, our spiritual formation team at Point University this fall and next spring is hope, colon, discovering life. Because you cannot figure out life in the world in which we live without hope. And I don't mean the kind of hope that gets you a lottery ticket or hopes that you pass. I mean, really, does does anybody in this room really think Washington can fix a single problem that we're facing right now? I mean, honestly, or do you believe that somehow you're going to wake up tomorrow and the newspaper's going to have big, big headlines, peace breaks out in the Middle East? Or Congress adopted a real, authentic health care plan. I mean, do you really think Wall Street bankers are on your side? Of course we don't think that. And yet, the one word the Bible offers to you, to me, in response to that sort of stuff is hope. Hope in the power of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. 
in that hope, Peter says. We have been born anew to a living hope rooted in the resurrection of Jesus, a kind of confident assurance that that doesn't rely on my own abilities, it doesn't rely on the power of the world to fix itself, but believes that because Jesus was raised from the dead, my hope is secure and absolute. No wonder the Apostle Paul, near the end of his life and sitting in a Roman jail cell, probably for the second time, not long before he was beheaded, he said to young Timothy, for I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've given to him until that day. Right here in Carroll County, Georgia, on a hot, muggy Sunday in July, you and I can stand up with Paul and say anew, I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've given to him until that day. We celebrate hope today. We recognize that that hope exists in a world where, as Peter says, we're going to face some various trials. Well, you don't need me to tell you that you're living in challenging times. But you might need me to remind you, that's been true of the church since the day of Pentecost, for crying out loud. Uh, The churches in Asia Minor, who were the first recipients of these words that Peter is writing, were right on the beginning edge of an onslaught of Roman persecution that would last for decades. And yet the various trials that pop up in life apparently serve us as reminders of the incredible joy we anticipate when Christ reappears in glory and puts the world to rights once and for all. One of my good friends and heroes, really, in ministry, I think you all know him. I saw his name on your mission list, Dennis Free, Dennis and his wife, Lynn. Um, every time I get a chance to spend time with Dennis, I do, because he gets it. Okay. So he and I were having this conversation one time about you know, what, what's going on in, in our culture right now between the West and the Muslim world? And here's, here's what Dennis told me. He said that the Quran, and by the way, this is a time in my life when I thought I, I wanted to read through the Quran, which I gave up on that ultimately. But Dennis said the Quran was written in a world where the writers never imagined that Islam would not be the majority faith. The New Testament was written in a world where the writers of the New Testament never imagined a Christian majority. That's a lot to think about, but Dennis is on to something here. And it's in that sense that Peter is saying, (laughs) we we, we know there are going to be various trials. And yet those various trials remind us it's a day coming when God's going to fix everything and put the world to rights. We celebrate at homecoming not just our living hope in the resurrection of Christ, but that in that living hope, we know that these various trials are not the end story for any of us. We, We recognize, Peter says, 
that our salvation calls us to love and to be filled with joy. Peter, so, I mean, as you would expect, Peter, he just tells it like he sees it. He's stunned by the fact that he's writing to believers who never saw Jesus and yet believed. You and I, I mean, anybody here seen the real Jesus? Nobody's that old? Of course not. And yet, think about this. We, we live in a culture where sort of show me the money is how our world works. And yet here we are, gathered up together on Homecoming Sunday to celebrate what God has done in our lives, and we have not remotely seen Jesus. Peter would be really impressed with us. Remember that old hymn? I, I thought after some of the songs we were singing today, we might sing it. Oh, that will be glory for me, glory for me, glory for me. We actually ought to change the verb because Peter says that's not will be glory, that is glory. That is, the fact that I am in Christ and living in joy and celebrating what Christ has done for me, that is right now in the here and now glory for me. We recognize that the outcome of our salvation is to life, live a life filled with joy and glory. And all of that leads me to wonder a bit this morning. If that's all true, and we've come here today to celebrate that and to sort of re-acknowledge our own personal life and commitment to Jesus, and we want a kind of hope that is sure and steadfast in his resurrection. If that's true, then what should life look like tomorrow morning? Because it's kind of easy to come inside this room and say all this stuff. It's not so easy to go to work tomorrow morning and live out this stuff. So what should life look like for me tomorrow if I truly believe the stuff that Peter says? I want to just make three, maybe four little suggestions. If I believe this, then I'm going to drop my kind of individualistic focus on life. Okay, homecoming ought to be the church's proclamation that there's no such thing as a lone ranger when it comes to following Jesus. That wasn't God's plan when he made Adam and Eve, and it isn't his plan after he sent Jesus to fix what Adam and Eve messed up. That means despite our Western culture's focus on individualism, we must sort of gravitate towards the idea of community. And in developing the idea of community, that ultimately reminds us that we should be practicing a kind of radical hospitality to those around us. I had the privilege of being with some of your church leaders last night and talking a little bit about Acts chapters 2, 42 through the end of chapter 4. And that's a radical kind of hospitality. That's what God has called the church to do and to be. If what Peter says is true, when I go to work tomorrow, I ought to go to work with a different view of what it means to be a human being. Okay? You know, we're, we're all pretty confident with the kind of homogeneity that um, tends to characterize the church in so many places. We're most comfortable when we're around people just like us. 
Several years ago, a lady named Daniel, uh, Beverly Daniel Tatum wrote a very interesting book titled, Why Do All the Black Kids Sit Together in the Cafeteria? She was actually on the staff at Spelman College. In answer to that question, I would say, at least in part, the same reason all the white kids sit together and all the Spanish kids sit together and all the Asian kids sit together and all the whatever sit together. We just kind of like to sit with people like us. And yet the gospel says that all that stuff that separated human beings for centuries was torn down by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the kingdom of God, according to Paul, Ephesians 2, tore down all the dividing walls. In Galatians 3, he reminds us that every issue of gender, geography, and group identity has disappeared because we were all baptized into one body in Christ. There's one body of Christ, not a million bodies of Christ. So if we believe this stuff, I mean, it's one thing to sit here and, oh, man, that's nice, I like that, in church. It's a whole different thing to go to work tomorrow with a different view of humanity that says we are one body of Christ. You know, there's a great story. Um, I mean, I grew up in the South, um, Berkeley County, South Carolina. Um, I have relatives who were on the battery in Charleston when the cannons were fired at Fort Sumter. So, you know, don't you can't question my Southern credentials, all right? And yet, it frustrates me that sometimes we explain away our bad behavior by saying, well, you know, that's just how we are. So let me tell you a little story. There's this guy who was a Pharisee. In fact, he was, he calls himself a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was a guy that if you were a father of a son in the first century and were Jewish and you saw this guy walking down the street, you would point at that guy and say, I want you to grow up to be like him. He was so intentional about his Jewish faith that he was traveling all over the ancient world, arresting people and coming back to Jerusalem and voting yes on the death penalty. And he says that himself in Acts 9, 22 and 26. But he met Jesus. And as Peter would say, he was born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And, for example, in Acts chapter 16, he is in Philippi with his mission partners. And they've done a little research. And they've discovered that there's a place of prayer by the river on the Sabbath day. And so they go out there, and when they get there, they meet up with a group of Gentile women Luke describes as God worshipers. That word in Luke's vocabulary means they love the God of Israel. They didn't like Jews. So they go out and pray to God, but they didn't want anything to do with Jews. They're women, they're Gentiles, and they don't like Jews. And here this Pharisee, former Pharisee, who had been transformed by the gospel, sits down with him and has a conversation about Jesus and the church at Philippi is born. 
if the gospel can do that to Paul, there's not anybody in this room or anybody you know that the gospel can't do the very same thing for us. We must get rid of our individualistic spirit, must change our view of humanity, and we must be more interested in the least among us. Okay, we you know we're all brokenhearted by what we see on the news. I don't know if you watched the news this morning, but um, my wife is out of town, and one of my daughters is out of town, and I'm babysitting two of my grand dogs. I don't have any grandchildren. I got grand dogs, so I had to get up real early to take care of the dog before I came here. And I'm watching the news, and um, in Texas, a tractor trailer was discovered in 100-plus temperatures outside with eight dead people and 20 people who were being air-flighted to hospitals. Those people are probably immigrants of some kind. That's what they suspect. I mean, I look at that, and holy smokes. I mean, can you imagine that? And that breaks our hearts. And yet... You know, got a remote control, right? Flip the channel. Out of sight, out of mind. There, there's no remote control for Christians when it comes to that. A very good friend of mine who used to be a very committed Christian. And if you go home and Google the top ten defense lawyers in Georgia, you'll probably see his picture. Okay. Um, He told me two years ago that the most difficult places in Georgia to get what he called merciful justice for people he defended was places where white evangelical Christians were the majority voters. Because we sometimes prefer punishment to mercy. Okay? I know the government has a job to do, and I appreciate them doing that. I also know the church has a job to do, and that's a different job. And you and I are going to have to be more concerned about the least among us. I don't know how much studying y'all do about sociological kinds of things, but the gap between the haves and the have-nots gets wider every year. If you study world history, eventually that causes all kinds of problems. And you and I, we can't sit here and act like everything's okay. Because we've been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. We know that we face various trials. And yet those trials just remind us that God's going to fix everything one day. And we know that our salvation causes us to love one another Enjoy in a way that gives glory to God. Which means we can't be too individualistic. We're a community. We should practice radical hospitality. It means we got to change our view of humanity and quit making all these little distinctions that let us off the hook. It means that we've got to be concerned about the least of those among us. One of my bucket list items is I want to read a biography of every American president. And I'm well on the way to doing that. I've read 
all the 20th century presidents. I've read at least one biography of them. I've read biographies of all the early guys from George Washington up through Andrew Jackson, and um, even read a biography of Alexander Campbell, uh, Alexander Hamilton, because Alexander Hamilton probably is the one guy who thought he should have been president and maybe should have been, who never was. And I've read Lincoln and Grant, and um, right now, driving down here this morning, I'll listen to a biography on Grover Cleveland, of all people. But I listen, the biography I listened to of James Madison, written by a lady named Lynn Cheney. And, you know, Madison was a father of the Constitution, and he's sort of trying to shepherd this group of 13 groups of people who all thought their point of view was the only right point of view to create the federal government. George Washington's there is kind of the chairman of it all. And Ben Franklin had been in France, um, but he eventually came back before the Constitutional Convention was over, and he's sitting in this big room, and George Washington sitting in the same chair he's had in every day. And on the back of that chair, one of the slats had engraved in it uh, an image of the sun with rays going out from it. And Washington got up at a very critical time and made a really crucial speech, most scholars would say, was the speech that got him over the hump for the Constitution. When he sat down, Ben Franklin stood up and said, um, General Washington, ever since I've been here, I've been wondering whether that sun carved on the back of your chair was a sunrise or a sunset. Now I know it's a sunrise. So here's the deal. If you believe what this text from 1 Peter says, you believe tomorrow begins sunrise and you believe despite the fact this is a 91 year old church tomorrow is sunrise you believe when you go to work tomorrow despite the challenges it's a day of sunrise because we've been born anew to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead thank you Lord for this church for its witness in this community Thank you for the people who've gathered here today to celebrate what you have done in the life of this church. I pray that our faith will be renewed and that through the power of the resurrection, we would be men and women who look at life as sunrise and not sunset. In Jesus' name, amen.